for the reading of all that today, but we're going to look at 7 through 21, uh, and that places a smack dab in the, in the narrative structure of the chapter, uh, right in the middle. Uh, and th- this narrative structure, I think, can be easily summarized by, by seeing it as there's an evil committed, there's a curse pronounced, which we're going to read, and then there's vengeance achieved. So uh, let us stand for the reading of God's holy word and the Jotham's curse upon Abimelech and upon Sheshem. Starting in, in verse 7, it says, uh, when, I was told, uh, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said, Listen to me, you letter, your leaders of Sheshem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my vine or my wine? Uh, I was German there for a second. Um, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? And all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity... When you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Sheshem, because he is your relative." If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Sheshem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Sheshem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled. And went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, our text today is dark. We pray uh, that the, the darkness that we read today, um, if, if there's any of us in a, in a weak emotional spot today, Lord, don't let the darkness overwhelm that person. Uh, but Lord, um, let us... Uh, Let us gaze into this text and see the message you have embedded in it for us. Let us us come to understand and to know that the depths of the darkness that is in humanity. And Lord, give us a glimpse of the light of the hope that is in Christ. And let our hearts grasp that hope. Let, let Let us turn from the darkness and turn to the light and be saved by your beloved son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, um, chapter 8. Oh, go ahead and have a seat. Sorry. I apologize. 
Um, chapter 8 ends with the death of Gideon. Gideon is, is dead, and, and, it, and it ends with the apostasy of Israel. If you sum up just a, a little bit, starting in verse 33, it says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, Baals and made Baal Barith their god. Baal uh, Barith there means god of the covenant. And the, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Uh, it is here that our text is situated. Gideon's dead. Israel has left her husband, Yahweh, and bound herself to another. She's, she's bound herself to Baal, Barith, which again can be translated as the Lord of the Covenant. And Israel is not being faithful neither to Yahweh or to their earthly rulers. And at such a time, we are introduced to Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech is the son of Gideon and his concubine. We see that in 831. And, and this, this is a woman whose family of origin appears to be deeply connected to the political life of an important economic Canaanite center, the, the, the land of Sheshem. Uh, Sheshem sits in the in a valley, so it's a key strategic trade route from from the east to the west and from the north to the south. Um, it's it, uh, Abraham went there, so it's been it's been an important part of Palestine for a long time. You know, there's a huge tower there that can fit a thousand people. Um, but as we shall see, Abimelech, the, the son of Gideon, is willing to commit great evil to gain power, and he is smitten with the same penchant for vengeance that his father was. In short, the object of our focus today is not going to be a hero who delivers Israel from the oppression of its enemies. Instead, it's going to be on a villain who, as Judges 21-25 tells us, will do what is right in his own eyes. It is a tale of woe and sorrow. And as we look at this text, it is my aim to focus on three things. Three things. Mankind is fallen. God sees. And judgment is coming. These three points will come as we follow the structure of the narrative. Um, the structure, again, is there's evil committed. That's verses 1 through 6. We see evil committed. Uh, verses 7 through 21, which we read, is a curse pronounced. And then 22 through 57, the rest of the chapter, is how God achieves that vengeance. So uh, evil committed, mankind has fallen. That's the first heading, if you take notes. Evil committed, mankind has fallen. That's 9 one through six. Um, Abimelech and the people of Sheshem commit a great evil in these verses. From the very start, we should be suspicious of anyone named Abimelech. If you've read Genesis up to this point, there are two instances of Abimelech showing up, and he's always a little bit hostile toward a patriarch, so Isaac or Abraham. In fact, so hostile, he thinks that he can take the patriarch's wife and make them his own wife, right? So both uh, Sarah and um, Rebecca, is that right? Isaac's wife? Anybody? Yeah, Rebecca. Um, uh, uh, Abimelech's like, oh, she's pretty, or she seems desirable. I'm going to take her from this man who also maybe is a little afraid of the king and isn't really like forthright and saying like, that's my wife, dude. Don't do that. Um, so th there's this tension between the patriarch and Abimelech. Abimelech is powerful. The patriarch feels weak. Um, and there's conflict between the two. God always saves the woman, right, uh, from the, the, the lack of, 
of, of loving boldness and kindness towards his wife, right? So the, the patriarchs fail. Uh, God saves the women uh, from their failures. And uh, the patriarch and his family always, always win, right? They always, they always receive gold from Abimelech. They always plunder his land. They always flourish. Um, and uh, Abimelech is, is not, is not um, does not prosper uh, because of the encounter. Um, so from the very beginning, uh, we have Canaanite kings are Abimelech. Um, we also pick up Right in, in Psalm 34, that Abimelech can be a title of a king. Maybe not his name, but just his title. If you read the inscription of Psalm 34, uh, it talks about the king of Gath, whose name is Achish. Um, uh, he's called Abimelech in Psalm 34. And so, so Abimelech can become this title of this Canaanite king. Now, uh, if you know anything about Israel and Canaanites, the Israelites do not like Canaanites. Right? And they definitely don't like their kings. They are, they are enemies. And so uh, as, a, as a good Jew reading this text, our, our mind should be like, what is going on? Why is the son of Gideon named Abimelech? I don't think things are going to go well with this guy. And as we continue to read, uh, that's, that is the case. Um, that is the case. The, now his... his um, Abimelech's mother, I think, is very clearly well-connected, right? If you look at verse 1, um, it says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Sheshem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother, again in verse 3, And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Sheshem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. Um, so, now, uh, I, this may be me being cynical, right? But um, I, I think if, uh, if just a nobody like me, right? If I'm like, hey, dad and brother and other brother, go tell everyone, all the leaders of, I don't know, San Diego to, to vote for me because they all live in San Diego. Go, go vote for me. No one's going to vote for me and I'm not going to become mayor of San Diego, right? Like my family is too inconsequential, too powerless, to uh, not in the known for any tactic like that to be effective. But this woman, Abimelech's mother, was connected to a powerful family. That's why when he goes to them and says, hey, I'm your kin, right? I am your kin. I'm the son of Jeroboam. He's, he's, he's so rich because of how he defeated Midian. I'm his son. Make me your ruler, and because of that, that appeal to the people of Sheshem and because the family was connected, it sounded like a good idea to everybody else. And so they agree. This, this connected Abimelech, who's, who's the son of wealthy Gideon because he, he, he plundered Midian, um, he is being, uh, he's being rejected by Gideon's family. He's not receiving the inheritance and all that wealth. And so he's using what he knows he has, his, his family connection through his mother, to try to gain something. He, he wants. He wants power. He wants influence. He wants wealth. He wants to rule. That's what Abimelech wants. And he is willing to do anything to get it. After he has successfully convinced the leaders of Sheshem that he should be their man, he is given 70 pieces of silver. He, he takes it from the deity of the, deity of the day. That's the ball 
uh, Barith, the Lord of the Covenant, and he hires a band of mercenaries. He, he goes out, it's called, they're called worthless men, worthless and reckless fellows, which is supposed to remind you of how people uh, saw David's band of followers, right? David uh, uh, gets all these people who are, who are tired of Saul, uh, but Abimelech is not David. It's actually more like Saul, if, you, if you're reading uh, the narrative and seeing the points of connection. But anyway, um, uh, Abimelech hires these guys to fight for him. He hires an army. And he takes this army and he marches 20 miles south to um, Ophrah. And he, and he goes there with the intent not to, not to threaten them and to send them away, right? But to kill his own flesh and blood. He goes to kill his family. Verse 5. And he went to his father's house to Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. So Abimelech seals the covenant that he made with Sheshem and with the god Baal Barith as he sacrificially slaughters his brothers upon a single stone. One by one. This wasn't like they just sort of showed up and there was a a massacre in the camp as people were trying to flee and fight back, right? He captures them. He captures 70 of his brothers and he slaughters them on a single stone. I think the brevity with which the text deals this religiously and politically charged massacre Right, is deceptive of the weight and of the significance of what we've just read. Abimelech has, has decisively thrown his hat in a certain camp. In, in the great war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, remember Genesis 3.15, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall crush his heel. And Abimelech has aligned himself with the seed of the serpent. Like Cain before him, he has become a fratricide and murdered his brothers. He did not, as Jesus summarizes in the second table of the law in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, love his neighbor as himself. And like Aaron before him, he engages in unauthorized cultic practices. He's worshiping a God of his own making for what he thought would be his own advantage. He did not, as Jesus summarizes in the first table of the law in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, love the Lord his God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind. You see, Abimelech is an example of what mankind can do in his fallen state. Abimelech is an example of, of, of our bent, of our, of our trajectory, of the way that we curve because of our fallenness. Here's a reminder that in a post-Genesis 3 world, humans are capable of all manner of evil. And we are capable of this evil because uh, this evil, it's defined as loveliness toward God and our neighbor. It's part of our human condition. It is part of us. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so as we look at this, this wretchedness of Abimelech, of, of the depths of his sin that he is willing to go to pursue his own power, to pursue his own fulfillment, to pursue his own agenda. He violates both tables of the law, right? He, he doesn't love God. He doesn't love his neighbor. I think one thing, one thing that we should grapple with and, and, and examine is that evil lives within us. In each and every human being, the capacity for that level of evil exists. That is, within my own heart, given the right set of circumstances, I could end up like Abimelech. I could hate my brother and reject the true worship of God and his beloved son, Jesus. I could do that. Now, um, this morning, my son said a sweet thing to me. He said, Daddy, I don't think you could be like Abimelech. Right? That was a sweet thing to, for him to say, right? Um, and, and in a way, right, he is, he is true, right? Um, because of what God has done in me and the work of his spirit, um, I won't end up like a Abimelech. Um, but then in, a, in another sense, right, um, in another sense, what he has said um, belies a... Uh, like a depth of understanding that, you know, Paul, when he looks back, he says, I want to finish the race. Paul looks back on the kings that fell. He looks back on the judges that, that failed. And he says, I don't want to fail my Jesus. Right? There's a really real sense in which each and every one of us is, is we, want to, we want to persist in the faith. We, we have heard stories of people falling. And we don't want to fall. That, that falling, that, that, that in deep and intense moral evil that is capable of humanity does still exist. And we have to fight with all that we have to keep it at bay through the power of the Spirit and the love of Christ. Because there are ways in which we are so deceived that it seems just like a, a gradual slope. Right, A gradual descent, a gradual entering into this great and profound evil that dishonors God and wounds our brothers in this world. And so, um, Abimelech. Abimelech is this example of evil. And for, for want of love or security or control or power or wealth or painlessness or any assortment of human motivations, I could be like Abimelech. I could seek to gain those things at the expense of my neighbors. I could seek to gain those things in rejection of a right relationship between myself and my creator. I could seek to... to, to to acquire those things under my own power, by my own might, in my own way, through my own God. Not only could I do this, but I do it, right? And I have done it. And God help me, I will continue to do it in the future, right? I, I, I do not enter into a sinless state when I turn to Jesus and I'm saved. 
I have, as Romans 2.5 puts it, by my hard and impenitent heart, I have been storing up wrath for myself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Wrath, judgment, God's righteous judgment will be revealed, which leads us into the next part of the narrative, which is the curse pronounced. So uh, that's 9, or sorry, 9, 7 through 21. So remember Jotham? He is the youngest of Gideon's son. We see that in verse 5. He escapes the cultic execution on the one stone uh, at Abimelech's hand. And it seems like he, w- he was hiding, so he has no clue what happened. He knows that something bad is going down, but he hides. He, don't, he doesn't know who did it. He just knows that something terrible has happened because all of his brothers are gone. All of his brothers are gone. And, and it's not until later that word of what Abimelech has done comes to him and the circumstances of Abimelech's ascension to the throne comes to him. And then Jotham, because he hears what happens, he goes to Sheshem. Uh, verse 7 here, it says, When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them. So remember, uh, Sheshem's in a valley. You have Mount Gerizim on one side. And I think it's Mount Ebal on the other. There are also important mountains in Deuteronomy. I think it's 14 because one is the mountain of blessing. The other one's the mountain of cursing. Um, so they have these two mountains, and then you have the city in the valley below. He climbs on the, the mountain of blessing to pronounce a curse, which I thought was interesting. But then it's also interesting that um, Abimelech goes to the mountain of curse to get the thorns to burn down the, the tower. So that's interesting as well. But um, uh, Mount Gerizim, right, it's one of those two mountains. And so he is, he is literally, right, he just hid from the massacre. He hears what's going. Now he's literally going to the heart of danger. He is going to the home of the man that killed his brothers. He is going to the, to the tyrant who committed the great injustice. And he is going there to pronounce a curse. And that's what we read at the beginning of the surface and service. And why did we read the curse? Because the curse is the bridge. The curse is, is the call for God's justice. The curse says, I see this evil that is done, and I believe something to be true. This curse is an announcement of the judgment of God, and entrusting that the verdict uh, to the supreme voice in all judicial matters, the true Lord of the covenant, Jesus Christ, he will hear my plea, and he will execute justice. That's what this curse is. It is a cry for justice and a, and a casting of all my hope and all of my cares upon God. And I want you to notice the fundamental assumption of, of Jotham in, in this text. The reason that he goes to Sheshem and the reason that he goes to Abimelech is he believes with all of his heart that God has seen God has seen what Abimelech did. God has seen what Sheshem was complicit in. That the political maneuverings of Abimelech are in God's sight. That that God saw his greed and ambition and pride and power grabbing and wealth seeking. And God laid plans. God saw him lay plans for the murder of his brothers to gain power. God heard the blood of his brothers crying out from the ground. God saw Sheshem's complicity and the rejection of his rule and their worship of Baal Barith, the false god of the covenant. And God saw it all. And so despite his intense fear, 
right? Just like uh, Jotham, just like Gideon. He's afraid. He is terrified of what he's going to do. Because if you look at verse 21, he flees all the way to the very edge of Israel in the far south, to Beer. He, he runs so far away to get away from Abimelech because he is absolutely terrified. But, but that fearful man, Jotham, he climbs the mountain and he curses Abimelech, a curse of fire and destruction before Elroy, the God who sees, that is a contingent upon Yahweh's scene. Uh, verse 9 says, If then you acted in good faith, right? If. Um, but then verse 20, but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Sheshem and Beth Millen. Let fire come out from the leaders of Sheshem and from Beth Millen devour Abimelech. So he puts this condition in there. Jotham, whose name means Yahweh, is perfect and blameless. He believes that the perfect and blameless judge of the earth will not let injustice go unpunished. He believes that the just and holy God who sees is also the just and holy God who will punish that unholiness. God sees. And, and, and to be honest, this is so comforting but it's also so unsettling. It's, it's comforting because we know, we know that our God sees everything that goes wrong. And we can rest that God, we, do, we don't have to like try to, try to get vengeance for ourselves. We don't have to, to try to use our own calculations, right, to, to store up wrath for others. Because we can rest that God, no matter what has been done to us, no matter what wound has entered into our heart, no matter what evil has been per- perpetuated against us or members of our family or against uh, you know, our tribe or our nation, no matter what happens, we can rest in the knowledge that, that God is a God of justice and no wickedness and no evil will ever go unpunished. We don't have to fend for ourselves. We don't have to protect. We can cast like Jotham. We can cast all of our cares upon God. And we can, we can rely upon him for the verdict. That's why it's so comforting to know this. But it's also terribly unsettling. And, and for some of us, it may, be, it may provide more unsettlingness than, than comfort. And that's precisely because of what we talked about earlier. We are fallen. All the rebellion that I commit... All that hatred that I have in my heart, all that lovelessness that I engage in, and all the world that I create after my own liking, God sees it all. Even the stuff that that my wife doesn't see, right? Even the stuff that my kids don't see, even the stuff that everyone else in the world doesn't see, God sees. Things like my anger, my wrath, my malice, my slander, my obscene talk, my sexual immorality, right? Impurity, passion, my evil desire, my covetousness, which is idolatry. God sees, and as Colossians 3, 6 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Hebrews ten thirty one teaches us it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. It's fearful because he is holy. And not an ounce of wickedness can stand before him. It is fearful because all the wickedness will be punished. 
It will be punished both now and in eternity. It's fearful, as Jesus taught, because we should fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The fact that God sees is unsettling because it is tied to the truth, the truth that Jotham believed as well, that God is also the one who acts in judgment. You see, judgment is coming, which is our next section here. So 22 through 57 is vengeance achieved, judgment is coming. What what happens in 22 through 57 is basically just a narrative um, uh, rendition of the curse. So uh, Jotham curses, and then in in 22 through 57, we see how that curse plays out. And in verses, um, right, uh, verse 23 says, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Sheshem. So God is already pronouncing his verdict, right? Jotham calls upon the Lord to see. He calls upon the Lord to judge. And in verse 23, God pronounces his verdict by sending an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Sheshem. Their intentions were not good. They did not act faithfully. They they did treacherousness stuff, right? Um, And the leaders of Sheshem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, his brother, who killed them, and on the men of Sheshem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. So God has seen, that's what we see, and God is coming to judge. He sends the, the spirit, the evil spirit. So what happens in the next verses is there's rebellion and infighting. Um, there's a guy who's like, Abimelech's not your king. You should follow me. And then Abimelech comes and uh, puts down that rebellion. Um, and in his extraction of vengeance, he makes Sheshem a waste, right? The people are going to rise up against me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do even worse than my dad, right? Who, who flailed with briars and who, who raised the tower. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy their city. And I'm going to sow it with salt. Um, I'm, so th- there's also a parallel in, the, in early Genesis where it talks about Cain and Cain's son, uh, Lamech. And where, where Lamech is like, hey, if, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'm going to be in, in avenged 77-fold. Look at me. I'm Lamech. I'm, I'm super powerful. And Abimelech is, is the, the fruit of Gideon's fall. Abimelech is, is, the, is the extension and um, trajectory of, of what Gideon would have become. And so uh, he lays Sheshem to waste. He burns the tower of the Canaanite god, el Barith. So the god who he plunders, now he destroys with fire in judgment. And he does that along with a thousand of his mother's kinsmen who hide in the tower for protection. And Abimelech seeks to extend his revenge to, to Thebes, um, which is a, another city in the area. With the same fire, he destroyed Beth Milo, right? So he goes, and then a woman, she pushes a millstone over the tower, and she crushes the head of the serpentine Abimelech, which is pretty cool, right? So th- this man who's taken on uh, the form of a serpent of, of the of his father, the devil, right? He, t- he takes on the form. He does the evil that he is, his head is crushed by a woman. So God, even in that, even in the orchestration of events, he gives us a picture of what's going to happen at the cross, right? He gives us a picture that, that all the evil that rages against his children will end 
There will be, it will be done away with. The head of the serpent will be crushed. And Abimelech, right, because he's still a man. He's not, he's not Satan. He's still a man. He, he's ever calculating. And he's, he's concerned about his reputation, even at this point in his life. He's got this mortal wound to his head. And he turns to his armor bearer like Saul. Um, and he says, uh, kill me. Because I don't want to receive the indignity in this case of being uh, killed um, by a non-combatant, a woman, uh, in this battle. Where Saul was like, I don't want the indignity of dying at the hands of the Philistines. So you, you kill me. Um, so Abimelech dies. And, and the, the writer of Judges, he, he says this in verse 56. He says, thus... God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Sheshem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. God sees and executes his judgment, right? God sees and he executes his judgment. God sees and he executes his judgment. Romans 3, 9 through 18 says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asses under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the place of peace and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God sees and God executes his judgment. But you might be asking, is there any way for us to escape that judgment? Is there any way for us to return to a right relationship with God? Can we receive the ability to love God and our neighbor as we ought? The answer is yes. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes them who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you hear what Jesus says? And do you believe? The gift offered you today is 100% free. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't have to be dragged down into judgment. The God who sees the wickedness in our own hearts and the wickedness that we have done and the wickedness that we will do has reconciled you to God in his son. He has made a way so that everything wrong that you have done can be paid for. Your relationship with your creator and king can be restored to you as in the ways that it was always intended to be. You can be made new again. There's two, two, uh, two quotes here from scripture that I, that I want to end with. The first is 2 Corinthians 5. 16 through 21, and then I'll switch to Romans 5, 6 through 11, but I'm just going to read them as one, one block here. Therefore, right, how do, we, how do we enter into this right relationship with God where, where the, the sin that dwells within us, that, that would bend us toward Abimelech, how do we deal with that? 
How do we get it done? How do we, how do we excise the, the darkness and, and remove the wound? How do, we, how do we come whole? How do we die to that part of our lives and be born again? Therefore, this is, again, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 and Romans 5, 6 through 11. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or, or as we have it in John, he is born again. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting man's trespasses against him and entrusting to his church the message of reconciliation. Therefore, as an ambassador for God, for Christ, right? God is making an appeal through me, right? Right now, he's making this appeal to you. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, yours and mine, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us, the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And this is how God, seeing, God sees, can become another comfort for our souls. Because God sees the work of his son, Jesus. And God looks out at the room, right? And he sees those who have called upon Jesus' name to be saved. And when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, He doesn't see the sins that you've committed. He doesn't see the rags that you were clothed with. He sees you as washed by his son. He sees you as robed in the robes that Jesus put on your back by his blood. When God sees you, he says, My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are so identified with Jesus in the mind of God because what Jesus has done that all of those old things are gone and all that is new has remained. You are new creation. You have been born again of the living God. You have, become, you have been given the right to become a child of God. And all that is unlocked. All that is granted to you. The, the, the mechanism by which we, we enter into that and step into that is faith, is belief, is trust. And so for some of us, we've had it for decades. For, for maybe some of us, it's just starting now. But all of us who have this faith can say this. All of us who have this faith can, can say, I have a sure knowledge by which I hold this true, all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. We have a wholehearted trust that the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel, which we've just heard, right? That God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins and righteousness and salvation. God has granted that to me. 
The judgment we deserve has passed over us. We've been set free from our bondage and and the tyranny of the devil. Jesus has paid it all. And those of us who have faith, we acknowledge that these gifts are of sheer grace, granted solely by Christ's merit. Jesus is worthy. Repent and believe upon his name today. Let's pray. God, we are eternally grateful for what Jesus has done. That though our, our sins were a burden which we could never carry ourselves, that, that the weight of them has weighed us so down that, that we can never rise above the pit that we were in. In fact, it seemed like all of our energies, all of our effort was only to dig that pit deeper and deeper and deeper and to put more and more weight upon our backs. But Lord, you saw. You saw us in our estate. You saw the, the, the dejection of how we were living And while we were still your enemies, while we were still fighting and striving against you, you sent your own son. God came to us in the form of a child. And he grew to be a man. And he shared all that we share. Everything that Jesus has touched has been redeemed. So, so all of our life, because Jesus lived a life just like us, just like us in every single way, except one he never sinned, just because Jesus lived like that, his death redeems all of it for us. His death has bought all of us, not just part of us, not just the part of us that will live in heaven one day eternally with him, which, which we, we, we wonder at, And we love and we rejoice. But he has bought all of us even now. And his call to us is to repent. And to believe the gospel. And so Lord, we we all acknowledge here this morning. That there still is darkness within us. That like Abimelech, we we desire power or fame or money or greed. We desire things to have them our own way. We we desire um, to to not... uh, to not confront people the way that we should or not talk to people the way that we should or, or, or we just wish that people would act a certain way around us. And so we, we plot and we, we scheme and we, we, we make up our own way. We sin against our neighbors. We wound them. We manipulate them. We, we drive them away from you. And Lord, we also, we, we reject the true worship of you. We, we fashion you after our own image. And we make a God of our imagination and call him Jesus. Lord, we repent of our sins. We don't want to be that way. We want Jesus to be Jesus. We want the Jesus of our imagination to be the Jesus of reality. We want to worship that man, that real man, who came and lived a perfect life, who climbed up on a cross of his own free will at the hands of the Romans. He could have ended it all there, but he didn't because he looked out and he saw us in that pit. 
And he said, I love you. So he climbed up on that cross and he died there. And before he died, he cried out, it is finished. And a a countless number of souls he redeemed. Lord, work out that redemption in our lives. Hallow the name of Jesus in this church. Let us run to you in repentance. The, the, the knowledge that Jesus sees and Jesus paid it anyway. Lord, that frees us to be honest about the darkness. That frees us to be honest about the darkness. Because that's not us anymore. We are new creations. And Jesus is triumphant. And Jesus will have for himself a people. So Jesus and Holy Spirit and Father, do all that we need. Because we need much. We need you in every possible way imaginable. And so Father, do that in us. Do that in us. Work in us, we pray. Amen. So in a second here, um, we're going to come to the Lord's table. 